This is Profiles, and I'm Mark Edwards, and today we have the new president of Indiana State University, Dr. Deborah Curtis. Indiana State University's 12th president, Dr. Curtis, in a sense has come home again. That home is literally the 19th century condit house, replete with a ghost, maybe. On the center of the campus at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, they're brave enough they're going to move into the house anyway, or have, I should say. Dr. Curtis will only have to look out her window most mornings to see the young men and women making their way across a beautiful campus and heading to class and hopefully heading off to a more beautiful future and rewarding futures as well. Serves as a reminder of her own personal experience, from what I can tell, not only at Indiana State, but other schools much like ISU. There's a high percentage of uh, students who were first in their family to attend college, just as she had been. Coming from the Chicago suburbs, Deborah Curtis earned money for school, working in factories. First, she paid her way to McMurray College in Jacksonville, Illinois. She earned a bachelor's degree in music education and eventually a master's in music from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Now, one would expect with the music background that there's a nice Steinway in the parlor of the Condit House that probably will be getting some attention. We'll ask about that. And Curtis eventually received her Ph.D. from Indiana State University in curriculum and instruction back in 1986. And right after that, she headed off for what I believe is a 26-year career at Illinois State University, beginning as a faculty member, working her way through the ranks to full professor and finally administrative roles first director of the Teacher Education Center and the dean of the College of Education. Most recently, she had been the provost and chief learning officer at the University of Central Missouri. Now, Dr. Curtis's selection from more than 70 candidates to replace Dr. Daniel Bradley, who retired after a nine-and-a-half-year tenure, is historically significant for two reasons. One, she is only the second ISU graduate to serve as president at ISU. And, of course, she is the university's first female to serve in the top job, something which she once admitted it may make her a little bit nervous uh, because why? Good to talk with you today. I will tell you, it's a real honor and a privilege to be the first woman. But there are a lot of people who are investing in that fact at Indiana State University. I've been really impressed as I've arrived as how many people have shared with me this matters a great deal to them. Someone I was speaking with recently, as a matter of fact, Mark, made this comment. I thought, I will share that comment. I'm delighted to be the first female president, but I'll be really thrilled when there's a second one. The door's open, and now the opportunity is there for others. You know, you said you're grateful that we're over that hurdle now and that any woman who is interested in serving as president of Indiana State can perceive that they are equally as likely as anyone to do so. That's a great sentiment because the thing that struck me in looking at your career is you worked on so many levels, you wore so many hats, and talk about experiential learning. Holy smokes. You said people believed in me before I believed in myself. Tell us a little bit about that. Who believed in you before you believed in yourself? You know, anyone who has achieved a position that has a sense in oneself that they've achieved a monumental opportunity that I am feeling right now as a president causes you to look back and think about your journey and how you came there. And I will say that as a young woman in high school and, and college in the 60s, it was really an opportunity for women to break out of the mold, but it wasn't a short path to do that. So my mind has gone to less than a handful of people. One of the first was a high school music teacher 
who really directed me toward my first campus experience at McMurray. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about that. When I came home from a campus visit, I said to my mother, I know that's where I need to go. There we were sitting in the Chicago suburbs. And she said, why? Small liberal arts college. I said, because I'm confident Nancy Drew would have gone to that school. <laughs> uh, interesting enough, she said, Deborah, I'm not sure that's the most important criterion, but okay. It was a wonderful opportunity for me, and I was directed there by that, that high school teacher who had graduated from that institution as well. And I will tell you, the, the important part to me is he is still a person that's a part of my life and a person who has encouraged me all along the way. So it goes right back to John Van Hook, who was that high school music teacher who saw in me qualities in leadership I wasn't sure I knew I had at that time. Throughout my career later on, I had some opportunities to coach at a time when women weren't really even engaged in sports that much. And now that time has changed. And I've seen how young women earlier than I did and and my peers developed this sense of opportunity and leadership. I'm so grateful they have now that we didn't have at that time. So that's where it really started for me. Of course, my parents were a huge force as well. Always believed that I could do anything I wanted to. But then as I moved into my career, there were a few people along the way. Sometimes they were women. Sometimes they were men who invited me into roles that I perhaps had not sought, but was happy to say, yes, I'll give that a try. So some of those early opportunities, when I left Indiana State, I graduated in August. So the position I was able to acquire when I finished my dissertation was a non-tenure track position coming in at Illinois State. And within 18 months, because of the benefit of there being then a tenure track search, earning that tenure track position, there were people in that environment who saw in me that opportunity to do that. People didn't very often move from a non-tenure track position into a tenure track position. And so there were a couple of folks. There was an assistant chair, one of only three women in a pretty large department there who was a tenured faculty member who gave me such great advice. As a matter of fact, she said, Deborah, I'm going to be interested to see how long it takes you to stop bouncing off the walls about how excited I was. But I really believe that was based upon the fact that I found my passion and people had seen that in me. So that was another key force of a woman who'd gone before me in a leadership role. There are at least two or three more. I will mention the most recent one. The president I worked for at University of Central Missouri, when I interviewed with him five and a half years ago, I came home, I said to my husband, I deserve to work for a president like that at this point in my career. His name is Chuck Ambrose. Incredibly innovative, dynamic leader. I really meant it as a compliment, but I'd often say to him, working for you is like working in a popcorn popper. You're just always grabbing these bits of popcorn that might be flying around. And sometimes it's a, it's a jewel and a gem, and sometimes you just pitch it off to the side and grab for the next piece. And he kind of furrowed his brow at one point. I said, no, I, I really mean that in the best way. Every day it was exciting to go to work. And for me, that is the kind of environment I want to create where I'm working. So he's been a huge force in my career as well. Well, it's interesting because with your background in music primarily and your first couple of degrees, I have to ask, uh, what role do you think that played? And I think what I'm getting at here is... uh, my father was a musician, and he always told me, you know, hell is filled with amateur musicians. So, you know, he says, if you're going to do it, uh, do it seriously. So I never did it, but the rest of the family did. As I said, being a, a musician, uh, it's somewhat mathematical, but all, at the same time, very creative, and it does open the door to become innovative. You can go in an entirely different direction. My mind was never put together that way. Do you, do you feel that there is a, a connection there? I'm confident there's a huge connection there. 
first and foremost for me, because I've always been comfortable speaking in front of people, I attribute that to my early experiences learning to be a musician and performing. Well, your mother was a performer, correct? She absolutely was. As a matter of fact, had the World War II not taken place because she enlisted, she was going to DePaul University in Chicago in operatic performance. So all my growing up years, she taught piano lessons and voice lessons in our home all the way along. But I came from that tradition of folks who not only led, but were very comfortable getting up and talking to other people about that. And I really think that's a big part of my music training. But I'll tell you some interesting pieces as I went into into higher ed and engaged in that work. Musicians are are an interesting breed, especially in the university faculty environment. I remember as I served at Illinois State in my career uh, as a faculty member, chairing the Faculty Ethics and Grievance Committee for several years and having the experience to do an occasional investigation. I remember one time thinking, happened to be a couple of music faculty members, and just the sense of the committee was, they kind of both just need to be spanked and sent back to work. (laughs) And what I came to discover was, at that point, Point. We hire faculty in music because they emote, and they may like make life challenging for administrators because they emote. And yet it's what we ask them to pass on to our students. So it's an interesting mix of emotion and technique. I usually point back to my years as a flute major. I was a pretty good technician as a flutist, but when I engaged more in the performance arena with truly artistic flutists, I thought, see, that's not me. I technically was adept and practiced and ready to perform. But when I was able to hear performers with an instrument make them sound like a human voice almost, I thought, okay, there's that art. There's that gift of being able to make that instrument sing. That was really impressive to me. Well, so my father always said, he said it required such discipline uh, to teach your own children that he stopped with me. He said, I would never, he says, I'm not going to teach you music. He said, if you're interested, someone else will. He says, because I think it harms the relationship between father and son. It's so very true. I taught some piano lessons while I was a public school teacher in music until our kids came along. And I always had that piano there in the house. But as our daughter and one of the sons decided they wanted to do that, I tried a little bit. I thought, your father was exactly right. It's really a responsibility for someone else because it is. It's such a personal thing, right? Our music is. And when you're engaging with your own child, I think it's important for them to grow without the parent's influence on that as a musician, in my opinion. He's right. You know, I really like the advice that uh, you give to young people. As I said, uh, I have a quote here that you said. You said, you tell them, take some chances. Step out of your comfort zone. You can always come back if that's not what you thought it was. But you become an accumulation of all those experiences later on, whether it seems like it at the time or not. I love that because that sounds like uh, what my career was like. And my same advice I gave to my daughter. And isn't that the truth? I think sometimes young people career-wise start thinking in a very linear way, that this is the path I've put my feet on. I mean, think of a baccalaureate degree. I mean, I always try to tell them now, that's just the beginning. It is not the end. It is not the completion. And I describe that exactly that sentiment is a career is like a long hallway with doors and windows on either side all the way down. Step into some of them. They seldom, if ever, snap shut behind you they take you into new hallways of opportunities sometimes you can't even imagine 
And I really do believe, and I sit here at this point in my career thinking, there isn't one experience I've had in even those factory type of experience that haven't contributed to who I am and what I think now. Speaking of the factory, there was a time when you actually helped manufacture parachute <laughs> rip cords. And it struck me that, you know, that skill may uh, metaphorically uh, describe what a well-rounded educational experience is for a student. You know, that is a creative career. Uh, it creates parachutes and a variety of rip cords through experiential learning. How's that for a little poetry? Uh, that's extremely creative, and I appreciate that. That's a new vantage point for me on that experience that I didn't have. See, now I'll add that to my repertoire. I appreciate it. I'm, <laughs> I'm flattered. It's interesting coming home. You know, that you say you can't come home again, and you're here. And I know Terre Haute, uh, just in the time that I've been here, I arrived in the, in the 80s, and I know how much it has changed, even though I was right there. And it was kind of a slow change, so I didn't notice but for you, there had to be some real surprises about the campus and the community. So very true. It began for me when I started to research the opportunity because I thought, golly, I've been gone for 30 years and had not returned. Our careers, my husband and I, took paths where we were on the move a few times. I pretty much stayed at Illinois State, but his career as a principal and a superintendent caused some movement for our family. So it wasn't convenient for me to head back there. So looking online at some of the parts of campus I was familiar with, for example, Statesman Towers were there. That's where I did my graduate study work. They're gone. And so that was a bit of melancholy till I came in back and saw what's replaced that there's been tremendous stewardship of that campus over those intervening decades, and particularly in the last 10 years under Dan Bradley's leadership. Just thrilled to see how not only is there new construction, that campus has been developed out of a campus that had a whole lot of intersecting streets running through it. Now there are green spaces there. But even the care and renovation of historic buildings to new uses and purposes that are just beautiful and phenomenal, and we're using those today. So rewarding to see that. There's been some dramatic changes, and it looks like there'll be a pretty dramatic future. Of, of course, probably the first thing that they dropped in your lap was the strategic plan. Uh, <laughs> there never used to be a strategic plan. I don't know if you were aware of that. And that is something that materialized and probably was uh, built under President Bradley as much as anyone. And it kind of gives you a roadmap for the future. Do you see it that way? Oh, it's absolutely a roadmap. And I've had this dialogue over my career with other leaders in higher ed because, of course, the notion of a good, strong strategic plan has been around a long time, but many of them became notebooks on a shelf. Yes, we'll go through this activity. We'll engage folks. We'll put down these things we believe and we aspire to be. And then everybody got a binder and they set it on their shelf. I've been a part of those. But I've also been a part of living and breathing strategic plans, and I really believe that's the type of roadmap we have in our hands right now. And that's my commitment is to say we have a choice. We can have this static, put it to the side type of strategic plan, or we can have it serve us in our ability to be what I keep describing as the best Indiana State University we can be. I wax poetic about this because it's something I've been saying for 30 years since I left this institution with that being the cornerstone of my career. And you can see I've selected institutions to work at built in the same mold as Indiana State. I believe in that mission, and that mission has to be centered to that plan. And I, I'm happy to say it is, but we have to have it being a living, breathing plan. So you might imagine we're going to put our own take on it going forward. And I'll tell you, I use the term we all the time. This is 
something we will do together, and I'm pleased to say we get to write the next chapter for Indiana State. We're not here to do a whole lot of catch-up work. We're here to say we've come to a wonderful, stable spot. Now what's the next chapter and how do we push forward? And that's what that strategic plan is going to do for us. And this is Mark Edwards with Profiles. Uh, We've been talking to Dr. Deborah Curtis today about her role as the new president of Indiana State University. one of the pillars of ISU's mission is ensuring student success. It always was, but as you say, there were pockets, people that had their own uh, motivations, people that had their own little bailiwick that they wanted to take care of. Once upon a time, uh, when I worked at Indiana State University, I was the only civilian on the student retention committee several years ago. And what I mean by that is everyone else was primarily faculty. Having been a first-generation college student myself, I was amazed at how distant some of the faculty were from the real-life experiences of the students themselves. For example, our students was somewhat a special population, much like you and, uh, and I, had to work, pay for this college. I once took a show of hands in one class I was uh, teaching and asked how many were, had a, a part-time job in virtually half the class. Then I asked how many had a full-time job and there were at least, I'd say, 20%. And I thought, my goodness, how in the world can they do this? That's one of the challenges is student success. Talk about some of the uh, initiatives that are being taken, and especially uh, some innovative steps to making sure there is student success. Well, I would tell you with a mission like Indiana State, sometimes policymakers and the public who have not been engaged in that work don't quite understand how difficult it can be to navigate a higher ed environment. It isn't on purpose, but it's a challenge. We've been great over the years in higher ed of saying, well, there's a catalog. The catalog's your Bible. Anyone who's flipped through the pages of a catalog know it's incredibly complicated. And it takes you from one place to another place almost with a flip of a page. Unless you're able to connect those dots effectively, it can be difficult. My whole career in administration, I've really believed in the importance of professional advisors. I call them navigators. Because for first-gen students, and frankly, even others, because higher ed navigation, if you will, has changed so much in recent years, the goal of a good advisor is to take you at point A when you come in the door as that fresh new student, and point B being walking across that stage with your degree in hand and navigate the most direct path to that as possible, knowing full well there are going to be just some situations that take you off that path, but to continue to focus that. That's an investment we make every day at a university like ours in personnel, in programming. So when we take a look at a first-generation college student, I'm going to tell you as a leader now with 30-plus years in higher ed, it costs more to take that student across the stage. But the benefit of taking that student across the stage is not only to that learner and that student themselves, it's a life changer for the whole family. That's the truth. It's uh, The challenge now, especially with uh, first-generation college students, uh, which uh, I cross paths with many of them in my time at Indiana State University, was similar to my experience. No one had uh, paved the way for us. I kind of did it by accident, which was a little easier in the 60s. But when the Parents would come in, you would see their eyes glaze over. Sometimes I think they needed more 
understanding about what the true costs were to them, which sometimes is not always upfront and obvious. I was the marketing director, and I was very sensitive to that sort of thing. And I think just being honest and showing the path and mapping a map for them that makes sense is a challenge. That's one thing. But then at the same time, getting back to what we originally talked about is try this, try that. It's a long and winding road sometime. And I guess uh, what I'm asking is, are there any real metrics that you can use to measure student success or to uh, kind of map your progress uh, along those lines? Without getting too far into the weeds, I'll tell you some successful metrics we've been engaging in. And I'm now going back to my life three months ago. Are some analytics that are important for us to look at our successful Indiana State University population. So it means loading in a lot of data of students for the past 10, 15, if you can get to it, 20 years of what are the variables for students who have been successful at Indiana State and map those, if we can, into a predictive analytical model, not for the purpose of admission as much as for the purpose of engaging in infusing supports before things get off track. You know, there's really three stressors for students in college, and we haven't always focused on those. One is academics. We're all familiar with that, and we can certainly see indicators when someone's being challenged or where they they have gaps. Another one is certainly financial, so you alluded to that. Being straightforward with first-gen families about here's where those dollars come from. Here's, for example, like your expected family contribution is. Here are ways that that can be addressed. But to be very clear, it isn't just a one-semester thing because that's our worst nightmare. Someone comes in thinking they can do this, and within a semester, they can't financially manage it. They may be academically. But then the third one is behavioral. Had just some really good recent conversations in Indianapolis with some folks who do work with college-going students from underrepresented groups. And one of the gentlemen who was talking to me said, we have a mismatch of expectations sometimes for these students. It can be behavioral, it can be academic, it can be financial. That's our job in smoothing this path for those students to not only try to get those barriers out of the way and the siloing we tend to get into to make it very clear We need to hear from them what they're hearing from us, what their expectations are. He gave me an example of, for example, academic expectations. When a group works with high school students, getting them ready to go when they don't have other supports to do that, they do a handoff to us, those supporters do, of that young person. And on our end, we need to pick that baton up and say, the job's not over. Getting into the university is not the end for these students. Then it is really maintaining, for example, a young person who looks at a college schedule and says, well, that class only meets Tuesday and Thursday, an (laughs) hour and a half each. So that's my commitment and helping them understand, no, about twice that much time needs to be built into study for that class. So when they have this new freedom of a schedule that looks far different than a high school schedule did, to teach them how to build in the time they need to stay on top of their studies to be successful, those kinds of supports are crucial for an institution like ours. There can be a a transformation. Uh, It can be quite an experience. I know sometimes the perception of how a potential student or a new student or even a student that's been around for a while, how the perception of themselves and how they fit into the situation can make a dramatic change. And changing that perception or 
in reinforcing a perception of themselves that uh, will lead to success or make them feel better is much better than the opposite because I think, as you said one time, you know, perception can also be uh, kind of destructive as well. So creating that perception and just engaging, I guess, on a personal level, and not only in, on the academics, but socially as well, because this is a real social experiment as well. It truly is. And one of the strategies that we have found very successful as well is not only on-campus mentoring of students from either the same communities or the same kind of background who are a couple of years ahead of them in school and creating on purpose those mentoring opportunities, but tapping our alumni as well. Indiana State has 70,000 living alumni, many of whom came through the same kind of path to Indiana State that our current students do and tying their willingness to interact with our students back in as well. We are blessed with many, many alumni at Indiana State who choose to offer their time in this way. It may not be solely in an academic environment visiting a classroom, but it's certainly through these other opportunities to mentor in social environments, in giving advice on the, the financial piece and managing that. My worst fear is that a young person comes in and even spends maybe two, three academic years with us, leaves without a degree, but with a debt burden the size of a mortgage and no house to live in, if you will. So that kind of mentoring, not only currently on campus, but alumni who have gone before, is very important for us. It's a part of our fabric. And that's why full disclosure is uh, so important up front. And the costs are just, they boggle my mind you know, at this point. In, in my time and in our time, we were able to work like we did. You'd work the summer, you could have enough to pay for your education during the That's no longer the case, so for a number of reasons. One, obviously, we look at the legislature and we look at what they do with the budget each and every year and it's becoming less and less support. The percentages are going down. Tuition is also going up, and for a while there, it almost seemed like, well, the, the answer to budget problems was, uh, well, we'll raise a little 5% here, 5% there. That's the way it is, and they just have to understand. And then, uh, of course, the third leg of the stool is, and even for a public university, is uh, private funding and uh, endowments and uh, that sort of thing. So you're dealing with really a, a threefold problem there, aren't you? I think it's a challenge to think of those three pieces, but here's the messaging I've engaged in since I've been involved with this process. It is exactly those three points that we have to focus on. So those sources of revenue for a public higher ed institution Number one, tuition and fees. We have to do our very best because my message is always on our campus. Our students can't afford more. They simply can't afford more. So we have to be as efficient as possible and manage any kind of increases. And I will tell you, Mark, some of the challenges we have fiscally in high right now, you couldn't begin to raise tuition fees enough to cover. It's just simply not the solution. The second piece on that, appropriations, frankly, Indiana is doing better at maintaining a level of funding for higher ed than, well, the two other states I've been in. Illinois is a tremendously huge challenge. Missouri was doing a bit better, although some of those conditions have been changing even since I left a couple of months ago. So my path here with the legislature is to visit them regularly. You know, we've had a great campaign in marketing, Blue Is, and you've probably seen that work. My goal, I, I've told them as I've been introducing myself, is my goal is for you to see me down the hall and say, there's blue, and eventually say, here comes blue again. <laughs> but to say, first of all, thank you to them. Please maintain that support. We don't really expect we're going to, on campus, get an increase in that area anytime soon. So that's resource two. The third one is philanthropy. And you and I know only in the last couple of decades have public higher education realized we have to be more like the privates have been and find that support. 
I just referenced 70,000 living alumni. That's our biggest opportunity at Indiana State for some pushing forward activities, and we're engaged heavily in that right now. Our endowment is not what it should be. I'm going to do a whole lot of work in that area, more than any of our recent presidents have done, because that's the piece we can probably control the most, and that's within our ability to do that. So that really is the spot that we have to focus on. And, and I try to explain this to students, college students, too. It's not to create an endowment where we sit on a pile of money, and sometimes they don't understand that. It's creating an endowment that, as we invest it, then brings us the resources to be able to have those just-in-time scholarships for the kind of students we serve that's a need-based and just-in-time. So that's going to be our goal as well. In the past, we've had presidents, couples, who have really been active in the university. And uh, Dr. Bradley and, uh, and Cherie were obviously a good example of that. So I have to ask you, because uh, you're, you're bringing your husband along, are you bringing him uh, kicking and screaming, or is he ready to take part at all? Actually, let's go back a little bit, because I, I find it really interesting how you met. And it was because you were a coach, and you, you turned up, it was after, I guess, Title IX, you showed up at a meeting. He broke into the boys' club, right? We did. <laughs> uh, there was another woman's coach and I, and I, I was in season at the time. I was in my softball season, so she needed to wait for me. Uh, we had told our athletic director, we're coming to this coach's conference meeting. And he said, oh, you don't need to be there. And we said, we're coming. <laughs> Title IX, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And he just rolled his eyes and went about his business. So she waited for me for our game to be finished that day. And the two of us went. Her name was Cindy. And uh, we walked into this reserved room at the restaurant where they were meeting and opened the door, stepped in, and the room went silent absolutely silent and a lot of faces staring at us and there was one smiling face and he's now my husband of 40 years <laughs> where he said come on in so I will tell you that I always reference my coaching years because that without that opportunity I'd not have run across my husband he was a coach at a, another school in the conference and that's how we got moved over to Paris Illinois was we, we decided to get married because he had taken the head coach basketball coach position there so that was a key piece and I will tell you over these 40 years I could not have had a more supportive partner in a marriage and in my career progress because, of course, he was moving up in his career as well. He was a coach, then he became a principal, then he became a superintendent. And by the way, both of us acquiring the credentials to be able to do this work, it was a sharing opportunity to do that. We have five kids, and of course, they have their needs as well. And so if we had not had this balanced relationship, and, and I would not have been able to do the pieces that I've done. But now he retired. I like to say he's considerably older. He, he takes umbrage with that. But <laughs> he's usually in the next decade for me, so it always makes me feel younger. Oh, there you go. And so he retired just before we had decided to make that move to University of Central Missouri. And kids are up and gone and parents themselves now. And I said, are you ready for an adventure? He said, let's go for it. I really believe that was my last move. And he was the force who said, oh, you've got to do this. You've got to take that opportunity to put your name in. So it's the happiest story you can have for a woman moving through a career opportunity to have such a supportive spouse. So he's come in trying to decide, you know, and our grandchildren have been very interested in deciding what his title is. He's decided first gent works. First gent, good. I like that. Yeah, well, first well, gent's pretty well, good. I was talking to, to someone about that the other day. Well, would you be the first man? I said, no, that's kind of reserved for Adam. And that just doesn't sound the first gent. So you think that's what it'll be? Yeah, well, I think that's what he's most comfortable. Okay, with Okay, right well, we'll, we'll live right. with that. I look forward to meeting him. He said when he was interviewed uh, after you first got the job, he says we knew this job would require a lot of work. It's a big job, very important job. He says, but I think it's great. 
for young women to see her in this role. And I think that goes right along with what you said. So interested in the, in the story because I was told that, you know, when the door opened, dead silence. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you run into a glass ceiling much along the way? We haven't talked about that much at all. It almost seems obvious to me that you probably did to some degree at one point or another, did you? Well, certainly at different spots along the way. I will tell you, for example, when I left with my degree from Indiana State and went to Illinois State, and I loved that institution, thought that would be my entire career there. But yeah, it was stepping into a department where, as I said, there were only three tenure-track women, and I didn't tell you the other part of that, there were 28 Caucasian male faculty members who were tenured and tenure-track at that time. But it was a very different time, so it was what we knew. That's what it was. And frankly, you only found the other women in that department in roles in the way I came in, in non-tenure-track temporary positions. So it's what I knew. It's what most of us were familiar with. And frankly, until quite a few years later, did I look back and go, wow, that was just the environment. But I worked really hard. And I worked very hard my whole career. And I remember the first department chair I had who offered me the tenure position, those 18 months later, who became a tremendous supporter of mine, another one of those leaders who's in my short list of people who believed in me. He said, Deborah, here's the thing that made the difference. You were a non-tenure track, part-time faculty member, but no one would have known that the way you functioned in the department. And that was that work ethic that I was taught by my parents that whatever your job is, you go at it as if that's the job you intend to have. And I was determined I would be a tenure track person. So in reference to that question, I don't know. I wasn't a man moving through that. I could look at different scenarios in my career to say the women I saw who moved up worked really, really hard at it. I can't tell you men didn't. I think it was just a different environment. I can remember as I became an administrator as the director of the Teacher Ed Center, chatting with some of my colleagues and having that opportunity to have graduate students work with and for you and occasionally run across one who said, well, I can't be there to give that test at eight because I have these other commitments and looking at some of my other female colleagues saying, would you have ever said that when we were GAs? (laughs) We never. It was whatever you need, whenever you need it. I'll be there. I'll do that. So I think it was important to demonstrate that work ethic and absolutely not feel comfortable suggesting because I'm a woman, I have some other commitment which would prevent me from doing this. It's there all along the way. You see it. For me, I would just simply say I've become accustomed to identifying it But I've also become accustomed to knowing how I'm going to approach it. And that's, you know, you can pick that point in your career where you decided it's time to have a voice and it's time to have confidence in that voice to share it. And I think that's what I established throughout that career with the help of many other people. We've been talking to Deborah Curtis, the new president of Indiana State University. This is Profiles. Here's more words of wisdom from Deborah Curtis. You become a combination of your experiences. Say yes a lot. It's never wasted. With each step, you take with you that experience of having sat in that chair and having been responsible for making decisions that come with that position. And that's so true. I mean, looking at your experience and all of the things that you've done, I've looked at a lot of Vitas in my life, and yours is everything. 
from the most pedestrian tasks to the top, you know, and it's a, not that anything was a pedestrian task, but you understand what I'm saying. They weren't afraid to say yes to everything is what I'm getting at. Well, and I would tell you that I carefully chose those opportunities. So there were times where you, by virtue of where you spent your time, made decisions about a way I wasn't going to go and a way I was going to go. But for me, it was always about the value of what I contributed. I always tried to choose a path where what I knew I brought would contribute value to what was taking place and what the, the goal and the ambition of that unit or that objective was. So that was very clear to me, is to pick out opportunities where I was confident I brought something to that mix. And I think that's really good advice for any professionals. I've looked at a lot of Vitas as well in my career. And the one thing I'm most proud about mine is I didn't skip steps. I took every step that was the next step and tried to do my very best in it. And I'll tell you many times thought that was the last step. <laughs> uh, when I became a dean, I became an interim dean first as the dean that I worked for moved off to a vice president's role and thought I was getting that dean's position ready for the next dean. It wasn't me. I was so that whole year I was doing a whole lot of with my my staff going, holy cow. Holy cow, right? What an opportunity. But that ability to get in there and say, okay, what can I do to create this dean position ready for someone else? And lo and behold, it was for me. Not assuming that that was my position, but really aspiring to create the position in a way I would be worthy of it. And that's always been the key piece for me. Or the, you know, the famous quote on the uh, how vicious university politics can be. Uh, did you find it to, to be that way in your, during your career? Of course, the quote is, you know, university politics is so vicious precisely because the stakes are so small. You know, <laughs> and it's been attributed to several people, and I'm probably misquoting, so it's a paraphrase. But that one always struck me because I could see examples of it in our university or uh, every university that I had been at, which weren't many, to be true. And I was just curious what your personal experiences on that. It's a unique environment higher education is. And much like the K-12 world, everybody has sat in a chair as a student in the K-12 world, so they think they know what the role They're of experts, a teacher right. and a principal <laughs> is. And in higher ed, you get a little bit of that, especially dealing with policymakers. Well, I earned a degree. I know what higher environment is. And you really don't until you're a part of it. I remember as a dean when people would say sometimes, as a matter of fact, sometimes it was local administrators and school districts would say things like, you just need to tell your faculty that that's what they have to do. I'd always get a smile. That isn't how it works in higher ed. It's a lot of consensus building, which is what the environment is in higher ed. I tell you, when I became a dean was the first point, and I've always loved talking about leadership with other people. So these are realizations I've come to through wonderful dialogue with other leaders. And I remember that first year as a dean thinking, your credentials, your vita, they just get you in the door. Everything else that happens after that is about your leadership ability and skills. Some people called it political. I didn't see it as political. I saw it as navigating and maneuvering in an environment to advance the agenda of your unit and the work that you do. I know when I left after being a dean for seven years and the provost I worked for in my going away party said, Deborah with a big sigh, Deborah is an extremely passionate advocate for her area because this poor provost was on the receiving end of a lot of my advocacy. But it was born out of a passion for what I knew we did and that need to acquire as much support for what we did as possible. 
One of the things you brought up along those lines, which has been a real bone of contention, not only at Indiana State University, but at at most universities, from what I can tell, talking to colleagues when I was involved in higher ed marketing and would compare notes. And it's the transparency in decision-making, which is a, because of the university hierarchy and the structure and the uh, faculty senate and, and all of the rest, and that is a real tough one to solve and a real tough one to navigate, as you say. Thoughts on that? You never have arrived. You're never there with saying, now we have the model that works. It's a day-to-day process. Shared governance is incredibly important in higher ed, always has been, and I think it always will remain that way. I think the important part for leaders, because, you know, it, that transparency where you brought up, when you're the decision maker at any level within there, there's some point at which the first venture out to get opinion gathering has to take place. And occasionally when you're not the first point, you're the second point or the third point, you get a lot of, well, when we're going to hear about that? Well, you're hearing now, right? (laughs) You know, well, others are... Is there a magic order in which I always have people talk about, for example, when I was a provost talking with faculty senate, we all are going to participate and we're going to all have involvement. So faculty senate's voice is absolutely incredibly important, but it's one piece of input. I'm going to also talk to the deans. I'm going to talk to the president. I'm going to talk to the leadership team, and we're going to come to a decision that I will make together, but it's all input. Work has to be done on that every day, and I don't see myself functioning as a president any differently. Well, you know, you said, uh, and this is a quote from you, it says, I've always been used to that in my career. In other words, transparency and decision making. It says, my experience uh, when it's not, people's imaginations are far more dramatic than the truth. Is that the truth? It's so true. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. You know, (laughs) if people aren't getting information, then all kinds of imaginary scenarios can fly into that. And and I've been a part of leadership teams sometimes where that happens, where it's like the game of whisper and whisper and whisper one person to the next, and then the last person says what they thought they heard. That's what takes place. And each iteration of it becomes even more imaginative to the point at which you hear what the concern is and you go, I can recognize a kernel in there where that might have begun but oh my goodness, the transition it's taken. But the other challenge to that in a shared governance environment is getting information out too soon because folks will take it and run with it as a decision's already been made. No, we're gathering input at this time. I've already had that happen since I've been uh, back to Indiana State as well. I won't give the example because I don't want the person who has been engaged in this to feel uncomfortable where someone's concerned they think you're going to X and it, my response was, what? Why would I? So the answer, of course, is absolutely not. And so I started to dig in. Where do you think that came from? Well, you know, people look around and in higher ed, a lot of things are happening. You're new, so they're concerned that you might do that new thing. It's an interesting environment. So, you know, often in regular communication, there's no substitute for it. Yet I have found in higher ed, communication is the biggest challenge. And it always is because mm-hmm. uh, there's times when it's virtually impossible. That's, <laughs> that's Maybe that's just my shortcomings. Let's talk a little bit about you. Is there anything that someone would be surprised to learn about you? So I had students come in and interview me, and we were actually doing a YouTube video on it, so it was kind of some of this rapid-fire question that we want your, just your first response. You know, what's your favorite sure, food? Sure, I love what's that. What's your this? <laughs> I do, too. You know, I, you know, in one word, sum up how you feel right now. And I said, jazzed. They go, jazzed? 
That was good. Okay, so we're going through all of this, and one of them quickly just said, anything you binge watch on TV? And it was just an immediate response. Say yes to the dress. And they kind of looked at me. (laughs) It's like a, you know, and it's a 30-minute show, and they usually back them up 30 minutes, 30 minutes. And just this phenomenon of people going to pick out a wedding dress and spending tens of thousands of dollars, it's like that train wreck you can't take your eyes off of. I said, so in my weak moment, if I hit one of those channels and they're back, I might sit there a couple hours and just sit there with my jaw open and my eyes really wide wide. But you know what? That's really relaxing for me to take a look at this so unrelated event taking place to anything that I'm engaged in right now. I think folks might be surprised. At oh, that. that is. Yeah, that's uh, that is surprising. I love the answer. You know, music made it as one of the first things I have to ask you, you know, what do you listen to for pleasure? And, uh, you know, you came out of the 60s. I imagine the range of music you listen to is all over the map. Oh, I love all kinds of genres, but I'll tell you in my car, the preset spots are almost always cool jazz, just calm, cool jazz. Ah. And you referenced it earlier. I thought we're on the same wavelength. Mainly the thing about jazz is every time a piece is performed, it's different. So I love that. But it just brings a calm for me uh, that if I'm traveling, for example, for business and I'm the only one in the car, I'll have that on. You know, there are a couple of XM channels, watercolors and real jazz that I'll just put those on immediately and just put that speaker to the middle in the back and, and turn up that volume. And it's it's a calming piece for me to go and sit and listen. I don't know that there's anything I'm not excited to go and sit and be a part of. I'm delighted to be able to go and watch our students' performances, no matter what the version they choose or the variety of genres they're choosing or or the moment. Jazz, uh, wind ensemble, choral, the musicals, I I love them all. I love them all. So there isn't a a bad choice for me. Oh, you know what? I'll give you another insight to me. When I was uh, doing my master's at the University of Illinois, I had a friend who was in the program with me. We're kind of moving through cohorts. So Donna and I went to a lot of performances together. And I had done my undergraduate, that little private liberal arts school. She had gone to Brigham Young for her undergrad. So it was a different kind of coming together as two college students in our master's program. But she and I went and went to watch a 20th century modern composer's performance. And it was our peers who had written some of this music. And we sat through the first piece about a few seconds until we did a a finally just almost perfectly timed look at one another and our eyes just got really wide. So some of the avant-garde kind of, it wasn't really music technology. I've told this story many times. I hope that composer isn't out there somewhere now and will hear me describe this, but I'm not making this up. Steinway, on the stage with the lid up. A person came out on the stage, really true, with roller skates, skated across the stage with a glass ashtray in hand, reached in and performed on the strings of the piano, their piece. That was the moment we turned to each other and our eyes got really wide. I kind of depart a little bit from that (laughs) style of music. I, I don't quite understand it, but it's okay. Now, we had the uh, the annual contemporary music festival, and once in a while, uh, and I would cover that, and uh, it was uh, it had some of the same feelings. Now, of course, I'm not musically inclined. I pretty much have a tin ear, but sometimes they were playing to the tin ear, I thought, but I'm probably not the person to judge, but that's interesting. In terms of uh, your family, are, are, is your family musically inclined as well? Uh, did they follow in your footsteps? 
No one of our kids has done that. Many of them enjoy, though, some musical pastimes. Our daughter played flute and was a drum major, as a matter of fact, for her marching band. Both of our sons played trumpet. We've had kids who have enjoyed that. Another interesting piece about our family is with five children, no one's an educator. And my husband and I, at the point at which our children were making choices in in colleges and careers, by about the third one, looked at each other and go, what did we do wrong, right? (laughs) No one's choosing our path through life. They all had their own way to go. As a matter of fact, there was a while in Illinois where we were hitting all the directional institutions in the state. Somebody went to Eastern, somebody went to Western, somebody went to Southern. I was teaching at Illinois State at the time, and we're thinking, Everybody's got to have their own place. We were missing Northern until our one of our daughters married our son-in-law who had a degree from oh, Northern. Oh, so you, you covered said, all the points of the Bingo. compass then, yeah. We hit them all. So yeah. different career paths they've chosen. In terms of coming back again to Indiana State University and looking back from 30 years ago, where would you like to see uh, ISU uh, in 20 years, let's say? An important piece for me coming back and thinking about that with the beautiful luxury of being able to say, this isn't a fixer-upper. This is really writing that next chapter. How do we go to the next level? And my mind goes to, let's take a look at this next 10-year block first. Indiana State University is the university for the state of Indiana. 85% of our graduates stay in the state. This is a clear missional alignment that's focused on preparing citizens and employees and folks who are going to raise their families predominantly in the state of Indiana. So I think that's an important piece for our mission, as well as those demographics we talk about, first generation, 30% diverse student population. So that's who we serve. But I really believe the model we've created and are continuing to refine is ready for not only some regional attention, but national. And here's why I say that. I really value our colleagues at institutions like Stanford and Harvard and all those important research institutions, but they're going to graduate about 20% of the college graduates any given year in this country. The rest of us are graduating the 80%. And those are the people who are going to go out every day in our communities and in our country and establish those roots for economic development and leadership at the community level. I think this is a model that deserves attention and can be replicated in other institutions around the country like ours, and I think Indiana State is ready to be that. So that's why I'm going to purposefully, with confirmation of our board, be external in sharing this and be, in in my own way, internal in supporting that good work that's going on and supporting our colleagues in being innovative in serving that role and then disseminating that information, not just at the state level, but at the national level as well. This is Mark Edwards with Profiles. Uh, We've been talking to Dr. Deborah Curtis today about her role as the new president of Indiana State University. It seems that it's getting more and more difficult to fill teaching positions, which I hadn't seen once upon a time. Do you sense that there's something of a crisis in teacher education or just the perception of what it means to be a teacher? 
Are less people going into that profession than perhaps there were 30 years ago? If so, why? I mean, uh, it seems like it's not very attractive because of all of the things. I have several teachers in my family, and I hear the story each and every day, and I'm sure you, you, you've heard quite a bit, too, and experienced it. What's happened? Teachers are now suddenly the fall guy for almost every social ill, it seems, or anything. Now they want to arm them. <laughs> so now you're tapping that that cap I've worn as College of Education dean, and I can tell you that passion hasn't gone away. And Illinois State, when I was dean there, is the largest teacher preparer in the state of Illinois. So it was a significant role and responsibility there. And here's what I've seen over the last several years. And by the way, this is a message I bring forward because every one of those three institutions I've been at all began as a normal school Mm -hmm. in their history. And the comprehensive university grew up around them. But still at the core mission is this role to prepare educators, not just teachers, but school leaders and uh, certainly university faculty in teacher education. Here's the frustrating part for me. The national dialogue about blaming teachers has to change. It absolutely has to change because you and I are seeing it, and I've seen it in my own family, and perhaps that's part of the last piece of the discussion we had. I will hear policymakers, especially when I was a dean, say, you've got to get the brightest and the best into teaching. And my response in the last 10, 15 years, why would they do that? The brightest and the best can pick any career they want When this national dialogue goes the way it has been, why would they choose to spend their time there? The job is so difficult, so very difficult and challenging. I'm just thrilled we have as many young people as we do now who choose to go into teacher ed. And I've just sat down with two groups of them this week on our own campus, and I looked at them. I said, I know why you're in this. And if you're not sure this is the reason, I'm going to be the first to alert you, and I can't believe it is. You're not going to get rich in this job. You didn't choose this job. You have a passion for this. And all these young heads are nodding, saying, absolutely. We just anymore don't have enough of them with that passion. The Midwest is already beginning to see that teacher shortage occurring now. And if we nationally aren't on top of this, and I believe the first step is changing that narrative, then we're going to have a very serious problem. And my biggest concern about that serious problem is not that, oh, there'll be a shortage so teachers will get paid more. We're going to start coming up with these alternative ways to put people in a classroom who are not prepared to teach children. And it's more challenging now than it ever has been. So we have got to get this dialogue turned around so that indeed those brightest and the best, even though they have a passion for it, don't choose another path. If there were one single answer to how to improve public schools, we'd be doing it right now. It's complicated. It takes teachers. It takes good school leaders who are supported. It takes a community that supports the school. It takes parents who are engaged as partners in their children's education, not taught as if I have trouble with your student because you're not a good parent. We have to engage those parents as saying, let's do this together particularly parents who did not have a good experience in school themselves. We have to all be engaged in turning that around. And until we get very purposeful in doing that, we're going to continue to have this challenge. You can tell you touched a nerve there, didn't you? Yeah, and I thought I would because it's something that concerns me as well, especially when you're uh, looking at uh, the idea of a liberal education uh, in, in, the, in the classic sense of the word. For example, the, the disappearing music programs, uh, I think that's something that because certain legislators or certain folks in a chamber of commerce somewhere doesn't appreciate, what's the outcome of that? Why is that important? 
what's going to be the return on investment? And I hear a lot of that. And I think you'll run into that as well. I know you will, uh, especially dealing with certain legislators. Return on investment. Can you make a pitch for that, for uh, a more liberal education where it fits into the process? Uh, yeah, you have to have outcomes and you have to show uh, return, I suppose. But at the expense of what? Well, I would tell you, I've already had those experiences where I've been called upon to comment on that. Been engaged with programs where we actively communicate and partner with business and employers to make sure that our graduates in, in higher ed are coming out and meeting their needs. And I will tell you, I seldom sit across from an employer who says they just need to know more about math. What they usually say, and people love to describe it as soft skills, and I refuse to use that phrase anymore. It isn't soft skills. It's personal professional skills because soft skills almost suggest it's not important. These personal professional skills are exactly the skills a liberal arts education is developing in a young professional. The ability to collaborate, the ability to problem solve the ability to communicate effectively, interpersonal skills with a team in collaborating are all pillars of a good, strong general education and liberal arts education that we all strive to engage our students in. And it's lost sometimes on the public, taking a look at why are we expecting these kinds of experiences for our students. So occasionally an employer will sit across the table from me and say, we don't care if they ever take another art appreciation course. We need them to this. And, and that's when we need to say, well, we do. And here's why. Here's how that contributes to those skills you talked about, those interpersonal skills, those abilities to sit and collaborate, to problem solve, to dig into. Those are the rich rewards of students being actively engaged in a broad liberal arts curriculum. You know, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, what's a straight English major going to do? I said, what are they not going to do? Those are some of the most sought-after graduates on a university campus, or a straight history major, not history education, a history major. The skills those people bring to a workforce are almost universal when employers are looking for someone who can communicate well, who can write well, who can bring a group together and help. Those are the kind of skills that those types of majors bring to a work environment. So the degree in a liberal arts area, because it doesn't point directly to a specific job, are really a mistake. That's a myth. And we really need to, I think, in higher ed, be more articulate about illustrating that. This has been a terrific conversation. I've enjoyed it, uh, learned a lot about you, and I have a feeling that there's much more to learn that we will uh, be privy to in the uh, coming years. Look forward to seeing you again, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This has been Profiles. We're talking to Dr. Deborah Curtis, who is the new president at Indiana State University. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.